The Dark Knight, St. John of the Cross, and forgetting everything you thought you knew about God. Hi friends, thank you so much for listening to episode 62 of the podcast. Lessons from Dead Guys is a work of Exile Liturgy in collaboration with TheologyCorner.net or the Theology Corner Network. If you've not checked it out, be sure to browse it and check it out. There's all kinds of awesome blogs and podcasts and contributors on TheologyCorner.net from a very diverse set of Christian expressions and thoughts, and I can promise you, you won't regret it. Last week, we talked about Pentecost and believing in the God of the impossible positions. And of course, somewhat, and, and of course, a somewhat problematic British Pentecostal evangelist named Smith Wigglesworth. Yes, that is his name. If you have been listening for any amount of time, you should probably know by now that I cut my teeth in the Pentecostal and charismatic traditions. So I, of course, have a lot to say, both good and bad, about both of those um, expressions of the Christian faith. But if you haven't listened to last week's episode and are feeling like getting a little Pentecostal, then be sure and listen. Um, It's definitely an interesting one, especially if you decide to look up Smith Wigglesworth afterwards, because I use that word problematic kind of um, lightly, uh, to say the least. He's fairly problematic, and there's just some really wild, interesting stories about his life and his faith, uh, and I'll let you be the judge of whether those things are good or bad. But this week, we're staying in the realm of the broader Christian mystical tradition, because if you also, if you know me, you know that I believe the Pentecostal tradition is a part of the broader Christian mystical tradition. Uh, so we're staying in this, uh, you know, type of mystical tradition, the Christian mystical tradition, but we're landing in a completely different constellation um, than what Smith Wigglesworth has ever been in. And uh, is this week we focus in on a guy named San Juan de la Cruz, or a.k.a. St. John of the Cross, who is a Catholic reformer in the Carmelite tradition, uh, who wrote one of the greatest spiritual classics in all of Christian history, The Dark Knight, which was orig- actually the—he wrote, too, I guess, The Ascent uh, of Mount Carmel, Carmel and then—I um, can never say that word right. Anyways—and um, then The Dark Knight, which was originally a mystical poem of sorts that he later wrote a detailed comment. Commentary for. Uh, so it started out as this mystical poem that he wrote while he was in um, jail, essentially, and then he wrote a full work based off that poem uh, about the contemplative life. Um, so, seriously, it's fantastic work. You're going to want to check it out. It's not an easy read. I am currently reading through a translation by Susan Muto um, and her commentary on it, and uh, I'm really excited about it. It's been good. I've been slowly chewing my way through it. Um, And because of that, we're going to dedicate two, yes, two whole episodes to St. John of the Cross, um, mainly because the whole work covers two major things that I wanted to focus on, the dark night of the senses and the dark night of the soul or spirit. And so naturally, we kind of need two episodes at minimum to at least cover those basic things. And But, but before we jump in into the meat of this episode and about the dark night of the senses, since this is episode one um, of this you know two-part series, uh, let's talk a little more about St. John and his life, which is actually really, really interesting. As a child, John was sent to a boarding school for poor and orphan children. His father has died when he was young. They were kind of wealthy to begin with. Um, his father was, and then he married a poor woman, and so he lost his job and his family's backing. Um, 
and eventually he died. Uh, but John of the Cross uh, was orphaned because of this. He was given a religious education from a young age and chose to follow the religious path. Even as a child, uh, he served as an acolyte at an Augustinian monastery. He grew As he grew older, he went to work in a hospital while attending uh, a Jesuit school. And in 1563, he was able to join the Carmelite order and took the name St. John of Matthias. He made vows the following year and was sent to the university, uh, to university to study theology and philosophy. He became an expert in the Bible and dared to even translate the Song of Solomon into Spanish, which was an act um, that was seen as way more than even just controversial this you know the the church had completely forbade the translation of the bible from latin uh which they said you know at the time is a measure to protect their original meanings in the scripture but we know that well it was more about power than anything and so he even dared to do that as i mentioned above he's a catholic reformer or what we as you know we typically know as the reformers as like um John Calvin and Martin Luther, uh, and those people, the reformers of the church, but within the Catholic church, there are these counter reformers and St. John the Cross was one of those people. Uh, and like I said, he was a Spanish mystic. He was a friar and priest in the Carmelite order, and he was commissioned by Teresa of, of Avila or Teresa, you know, uh, T- Teresa of Avila. I think we've mentioned her before on the podcast. Um, but she commissioned him. She, she asked John actually before he ever joined the Carmelite order to come and join it uh, and to assist her in her reformation project, which, which was her trying to, to restore the purity of the Carmelite order by re restarting and reinstating the observance of their primitive rule, uh, from the year 1209. So several hundred years Prior in the early on in the early days, the primitive rule of the Carmelite order, she thought that they need to reinstate it, and so she asked John to help her as she sought to reform the order and reinstate the observance of this primitive rule. This caused a rift. Uh, within the Carmelite order, it began to grow and create controversy between various monastic houses, and there was disag- disagreement between the disclosed Carmelites and the ordinary Carmelites over the reform. Some Carmelites, such as Teresa of Avila, felt that the liberalization of their rule had interfered with their order and practice. Teresa, along with John, sought to restore that original rule, which was far more rigid and um, restrictive than the rule of their day. So you can see when there's some pushback. So they want to return back to this more rigid, um, more pious kind of rule, and then other people in the order are like, you know, no way, we're not going to do it. So in late 1570, uh, late 1577, John was ordered to leave the monastery in Avila and return to his original house. However, John's work to reform the order had already been approved by by and higher up um, Papal Nuncio, I don't even know that's how you say that properly, so don't quote me on it, who was a higher authority. Um, and based on that, based on that he had already received permission to work on reforming the order there in Avila, he chose to ignore the, lo- the lower order and um, not go back to his original house and stay there in Avila to continue his project. Well, it wasn't much later, on December 2nd of 1577, a group of Carmelites broke into John's residence and kidnapped him. Uh, you know, they took this stuff very, very seriously. He was taken by force to the order's main house in Toledo. He was brought before a court and placed on trial for disobedience, and he was punished by imprisonment. 
So these are other monks punishing John for disobeying by imprisonment. Um, and so a cell was made for him in the monastery uh, that was actually so small he could barely even lie down on the floor. He was fed only bread and water and occasionally scraps of salt fish. Each week he was taken into public and lashed and then returned to his cell. His only luxuries were a prayer book and an oil lamp to read it by. To pass the time, he wrote poems on paper that were smuggled to him by the friar charged with guarding his cell. So this was really intense, okay? This guy, he's just trying to do what he feels is best. He gets kidnapped. He gets imprisoned, lashed, fed scraps, um, and all by other Christians, all by other monks in the same order, nonetheless. So after nine months, John managed to somehow pry his cell door from its hinges and escape. He then joined Teresa of Avila and the nun, uh, Teresa Avila's nuns in Toledo and spent six weeks in the hospital trying to recover from the abuse of those last nine months in, from the lashings and sleeping in those conditions and all those other things. And during the last few years of his life, John traveled and established new houses all across Spain. And in 1591, John became ill with a skin condition that resulted in an infection, and shortly, which led to his death. Shortly following his burial, there was a dispute over where he should be buried. Okay, so he was loved by some people in, his, in the Carmelite order. Other people didn't like him. You know, he was beaten, imprisoned, abused for all of this. And now he's died. And it's just now, it's getting even weirder. Like, it's if all this other stuff before wasn't weird enough, it's getting even more weird now. now. And so there's this dispute over his body and how he should be buried. Um, and so they thought the best way to resolve this dispute was by removing his legs and arms. Yes, cutting off his legs and cutting off his arms. And then over the years, parts of his body were placed on display, which isn't necessarily abnormal for um, some of these saints <laughs> that we, you know, St. Catherine of Siena's head's on display. But still, it's still weird, nonetheless. Um, so parts of his body were put on display or buried across several places. His body was scattered. St. John of the Cross was... Um, was um, canonized uh, in 1726 um, to become, you know, a saint. He was, you know, um, commissioned to become a saint and was canonized as a saint. And he is the patron saint of contemplatives, mystics, and Spanish poets. And his feast day is celebrated on December 14th every year. So now that you have been kind of thoroughly introduced to this character known as St. John of the Cross and his wildlife, let's talk about this dark night. The Dark Knight, as I said, was originally a mystical poem that John of the Cross wrote with a commentary on this po poem, on the poem following after. In John's work, we encounter, though, the Dark Knight is not just one thing. We encounter two Dark Knights, like I said earlier about the Dark Knight of the Senses and the Dark Knight of the Soul. First is the Dark Knight of the Senses, which is the narrow gate, or the first narrow gate, as John calls it, that leads those who are beginners in the spiritual life, or those in the purgative way, to the place of proficiency in the spiritual life and the illuminative way. Many are called to walk through this dark night of the senses, um, in John's opinion. But there is yet another, another dark night, which is that dark night of the soul. John on the cross believed that very few people were ever led by the Spirit into the dark night of the soul, and that even many of the saints um, and the people that we, we believed, you know, we elevated as saints within the tradition, even they did not go through the dark night of the soul, but 
most likely went through the dark night of the senses. And this is because he says the trials of the dark night of the soul cannot compare. Um, they're just so much worse. They're so much more difficult than the trials that, that one experiences through the dark night of the senses. And kind of like, it's like, you know, the dark night of the senses is difficult, but the dark night of the soul is tenfold that. It's like the way that this narrow gate kind of, it widens before it narrows once again. And St. John believed few made that journey. So in this episode, since it's part one, uh, on the dark night, we're talking about the dark night of the senses, which is the first night. And not everyone who's uh, a Christian or a person of faith goes through this, but the number of people that go through the dark night of the senses far exceeds the number of people, in John's opinion, that go through the dark night of the soul. But like I said, I, we're going to be focusing on that dark night of the senses, but I want to start by reading John of the Cross's original poem. There are tons of translations out there, so if you look it up, what I say might not even be close to how it reads in the translation that you have in front of you. Um, I'm going to be using the one translated by scholar Susan Muto um, in her book, John of the Cross for Today, The Dark Knight, that I mentioned earlier on uh, as we started this episode. And so this is the poem. One dark night, fired with love's urgent longings, ah, the sheer grace I went out unseen, my house being now all stilled. In darkness and secure, by the secret ladder disguised, ah, the sheer grace. In darkness and concealment, my house being now all stilled. On that glad night, in secret, for no one saw me, nor did I look at anything with no other light or guide than the one that burned in my heart. This guided me, more surely than the light of noon, to where he was awaiting me. Him I knew so well. There's a place where no one, where no one appeared. O guiding night, O night more lovely than the dawn, O night that has united the lover with his beloved, transforming the beloved in her lover. Upon my flowering breast, which I kept holy for him alone, there he lay sleeping, and I caressing him there in a breeze from the fanning cedars. When the breeze blew from the, tur- the turret, as I parted his hair, it wounded my neck with its gentle hand. Suspending all my senses, I abandoned and forgot myself, laying my face on my beloved. All things ceased. I went out from myself, leaving my cares forgotten among the lilies. So John the Cross uses this, you know, image of almost a Song of Solomon kind of allegorical interpretation of a relationship with God. You know, it's this lover and her beloved, and being and being guided by the beloved through this dark night. And he even he praises this night. He praises, even though he talks about how difficult the dark night of the senses is and how difficult the dark night of the soul is, he praises it as being um, more, you know, more desirable than the dawn because it's in the that place that we grow closer to God. It's in those the dark night of the senses and the dark, the dark night that... We come to a place to where, uh, as the last line says, we we can leave our cares forgotten among the lilies, which is essentially the end result for those who are willing to travel down this wild path that is the dark night. Those who are willing to allow the Spirit to lead them into the wilderness and allow that deep love of God and that burning Spirit of God and passion to draw them through the night deeper into a closer, more intimate relationship with the heart of God. 
And so there's a bunch to be dissected out of that poem. So much. And I've been going back to it over and over and over for the last several weeks because I feel like I've entered it back into a dark night, so to speak. Not a dark night of the senses, and I wouldn't say that I've entered... Maybe maybe I'm revisiting. Maybe I didn't really get out of the dark night of the senses the way I thought I did. Um, but... I've been coming back to this a lot. Uh, the season of life, as you, if you listen to the last episode, you know, like I'm losing my job. I found out today that you know July 1st is going to be my last day. I don't really have anything else lined up. Not anything that's going to help provide for my family. I've been searching for jobs, and so it's been back in a place to where I'm like, okay, what are we doing? Where are we going? How are we going to make it through this wilderness? Uh, and so I've been revisiting this concept of dark night, this, you know, the senses and dark night of the soul. And I've been rereading them and, and getting back kind of in that mindset of, of coming to a place to seeking God, um, without all the consolations and comforts that I, I, I've grown, maybe I've grown attached to over the last couple of years. And so the dark night of the senses, or as I like to call it, the night of forgetting everything you thought you knew. Um, the easiest way to sum up the dark night of the senses is to understand it as a crisis because it, it feels like a crisis. There's no other way to really explain it um, because once you enter into the dark night of the senses and you are fully into it, it feels like a crisis, a, a crisis in which John believes God is purposely um, withdraws his consolations or the comforts of the senses. You know, that kind of warm, fuzzy feeling you get during prayer or a worship service, um, that fire in your chest when a sermon moves you, when you're moved to tears and you know that it's God or the desire, you know, even the desires to serve, the desire to to study, the desire to pray, the, the ability to be concentrated when you're doing those things and, and be focused on God. John says that in those are the consolations, those are the comforts from God, and in the dark night of the senses, those things fade away or are withdrawn from us. And this is difficult to say the least because during this time, it is easy to begin to worry that you're backsliding or you've done something to lose God's favor or you've you've abused God's grace or you know because nothing seems to be working anymore. For me, when I went through this season of life, and I, I could in many ways still be in it, I became immensely legalistic initially. I thought that if I could pray enough, or I could fast enough, or I could study the scriptures enough, that I'd be able to conjure up those consolations again. For me, those consolations were the validation of my relationship with God. So I was convinced that you know, if I beat my body enough, that God would hear me and answer me. That if I fasted enough, if I just didn't eat food for a week, then God would hear me and I would feel comforted and I would see clearly what I needed to do. It's easy during the dark night of the senses to look more like the prophets of Baal um, who you know, mutilated themselves on, on, on Mount Carmel. Um, to try to get Baal to answer. You know, they, they cut themselves. They cried out for hours and hours and hours. And so it's easy to do that. In, during this time, to just try to get something, to feel something, to to have some kind of consolation, it's easier to do that than to be a person of faith like Elijah. And John the Cross talks about that, you know, faith is the very thing that it's our saving grace in the dark night of the senses. It is the thing that helps lead us through. It is faith, but it is faith without all the consolations, without all the promises, uh, comforts that come with being the, the love and grace of God. It is faith holds on to God through all of that. 
So I will say that I do not personally believe that God is necessarily withdrawing from us during this time. And I don't think that that is what John is saying either. God is always with us, of course, but it, it's easy to feel that way. It's easy to feel like during these times, God has drawn, you know, removed his spirit, so to speak, or he's withdrawn from us. He's distanced himself from us because it's easy. Um, well, you know, actually the whole point of the dark night is to help us realize that those consolations, those comforts, those feelings, being at peace, um, the warm, fuzzy feelings, the being moved, uh, the, ability, the desire even to follow God, you know, that immense desire we have so often in our youth, um, you know, stage, youthful stage of faith, all of those things are exposed as not God. Because in, in our youth, in our early stages of faith, it's, it's so easy to see those, cons- conflate those consolations with God. And so God's not withdrawing from us. Um, so much as is God is staying with us, but he's revealing, God is revealing um, a deeper side of himself beyond feelings, beyond consolations, beyond mere comforts or what God can give us through his grace. That, that said, this is not, you know, like I said, it's not a time to beat ourselves up. God is with us, um, and I believe more so. In the dark night of the senses, God is preparing us for that deeper intimacy. It is in this season that the soul learns to seek God rather than those consolations, rather than those comforts. It's in the dark night that we realize we are utterly dependent on the grace of God because none of our rituals, none of our formulas, none of our prayers or our fasting or all of our, you know, self-righteous piety can save us. None of it can get us through the dark night. We cannot progress any faster through the dark night than God's grace permits, no matter what we do or what we don't do. Three indicators um, of this dark night of the senses are this: uh, the soul finds one. The soul finds no satisfaction in either the things of God or in other creatures, which can feel like an absolute, you know, betrayal uh, of your love for God to not feel that way. Two, the soul is troubled by the impression that it has turned away from God. It interprets its distaste for the things of God as a falling away from Him, which is. Basically what I just said. Three, the soul finds itself no longer capable uh, capable of meditating and using the imagination in its prayer, despite fervent attempts to do so. So the soul begins to find no satisfaction in the things of God. The soul begins to condemn itself for finding no satisfaction in the things of God. And the soul finds itself not being able to, despite all of its efforts, to grab a hold of that desire again. To be able to focus on God, no matter how fervent of the attempts to do so, it can't do it. John, those are the three indicators of this dark night of the soul. And John describes the experience and the essence of the dark night uh, of the senses in this way. That the sen- since the sensory part of the soul is incapable of the good to the spirit, it remains deprived, dry, and empty. Thus, while the spirit is tasting, the flesh tastes nothing at all and becomes weak in its work. The spirit feels the strength and energy to work, which is obtained from the substance of that interior food, even though in the beginning it may not experience the savor. This food is the beginning of a contemplation that is dark and dry to the senses. Ordinarily, this contemplation, which is secret and hidden from the very one who receives it, imparts to the soul, together with the dryness and emptiness it produces in the senses, an inclination to remain alone and in quietude. And the soul will will be unable to dwell on any particular thought, nor will it have the desire to do so. In those in whom this occurs, no, 
In those in, in whom this occurs know how to remain quiet without care or, solicited, or solicitude about any interior or exterior work. They will soon, in that unconcern and idleness, delicately experience the interior nourishment. This reflection is so delicate that usually if the soul desires or tries to experience it, it cannot do so. For as I say, this contemplation is active while the soul is in idleness and unconcern. It is like air that escapes when one tries to grasp it in one's hand. And so John the Cross, he, he talks about the dark night of the senses. It's like there's something in the depths of our spirit happening, but all of our senses are blind to it. They're numb to this work. I think about it like this, um, and, and this might seem like strange to you, but going back to that whole idea of God withdrawing himself, Peter Rollins talks about um, the hyper-presence of God. You know, how that we're, we're told so often that we have a, you know, uh, a God-shaped hole in our hearts. But Peter Rollins flips it. He says, what if, you know, what if we don't have a, hole, uh, a, God, a God-shaped hole in our hearts, but what if we have a hole-shaped God? What if that feeling of absence is actually the indication of God's presence, that desire to feel God? You know, when, when we, we say we're numb to God and we feel empty and we don't feel God, that numbness, that, that feeling of absence is the very indication that God is working in the depths of our spirit. And I think that goes so good with what St. John the Cross is saying here. He's saying, you know, there's things going on. We are being and a type of contemplation is being imparted to us that to the senses is dark and dry. It's apophatic. We don't see it. We don't feel it. it we, we can't even, we can't grasp it at all through our, our, our desire. We have no desire, but we try to grasp it and we can't. But something in our soul is being imparted to us in this dry and emptiness. Um, there's something being produced in the depths of who we are. And if we give into that, if we, we stand firm in that and we hold fast by faith through this dark night of the senses, something great is happening in us. Uh, and Peter, going, going back to Peter Rollins, he, he kind of frames it as this short-circuiting, the presence of God. When we feel absence, it's really this short-circuiting. It's like, you know, you think about it, to work on a computer, to work on a car, you know, well, I guess in some... Uh, instances this is not true but if you're going to replace a hard drive in a car or update the or a hard drive in a car my gosh update the hard drive in a car i just said it again again people uh, if you're going to update a hard drive in a computer which have which you know those things have hard drives or update the ram in a computer um you're going to turn it off you're going to unplug it you're you're going to have to do that to fix those things and so i think about the dark the, the sense is kind of being this unplugging it's this withdrawal, it's a removal of all the consolations and the comforts so something deeper in us can take place. And so even like John says, he said, this reflection is so delicate that usually if the soul desires to try to experience it, we can't do it. We can't force this experience. Uh, but this is an active contemplation in our soul. While we feel idle and we feel no concern and no desire and we feel the absence of God, the spirit is active in the depths of our soul, despite our senses being numb. You know, it, it, so that that's beautiful to me, and it's it so it's to me this this absence. You know, it, everybody goes through these. And John the Cross he talks about how some people cycle in and out. You know, they feel God, they don't feel God. They have all those cycles, and so you know those are not to be mistaken as you know the dark night of the senses. The dark night of the senses is like. You know, those feelings of absence of God, feeling like God's not there. Those, cause we go through spells in our life 
all through our life where those constellations aren't quite there anymore. Those comforts aren't there, and then they are, and then we go to a good service, and our emotions get hyped up, and we, we feel good again. But the dark night of the senses is when we enter into a place to where that is our reality, where that absence and withdrawal um, of constellations marks that whole season of our life. But it's also in the mark that something else is going on in us. Something greater is going on in the depths, and we can't grasp it. Like, like he says, it's like air. You know, we're trying to grasp it with our hand. We can't grasp it, but all we can do is entrust ourselves to God to finish this work that he's doing in our depths. Early on in our faith, it's easy to equate those feelings, those comforts with God, but they're merely the gifts of grace and not actually God. Especially, like I said, growing up in the Pentecostal tradition, feelings, emotions, you know, the charismatic stuff, you know, we, we work all of those things. Um, and so when I first entered into that dark night of the senses kind of thing, man, it felt like I had been utterly abandoned by God. That every, you know, I just, every, I'd been abandoned by God completely. But this withdrawal, as John calls it, is not a punishment. It's not, it's not punishment for sin or slothfulness. Um, now granted, those things can bring on a feeling of distance between us and God, but this dark night of the senses is a gift, which is hard to accept. Uh, but it's an invitation deeper into the heart, into the love of God. This is the marker of a transition between the beginner stages of the interior life and the second stage uh, and higher stages of the spiritual life. This is a journey where one moves from infancy to adolescence, so to speak. This is where we move um, from, you know, one way of knowing God is coming to an end and another is beginning. And living between those two things is not even remotely easy. Because it's hard when when the way we know God now, the way we feel God now, the way we experience God now ends. Endings are hardly ever easy. My life right now is coming in many ways. There are certain things in my life that are coming to an ending, and I'm having a hard time accepting them. But I know that in accepting them, something else is, is beginning. Something else I can't quite see yet. Something else I don't know that's really over the horizon is waiting to begin and start. And so it's not easy, but it's in the dark night that we realize that we are helpless. Our acts of piety cannot pull the sun above the horizon, no matter how much we fast, no matter how much we pray, no matter how much we try to fervently grasp a hold of those consolations or God, we can't move the sun above the horizon. And this doesn't mean that we, we abandon our acts of faithfulness and we just throw up our hands and we quit. And I think if you're really in the dark night of senses, nothing will let you. Even on the days you want to give up, you want to walk away from God, you want to walk away from the church and, and give up and just wash your hands of all of it, you can't get away. And I think that's a clear indication of the dark night of the senses. So the only thing to do in this season of life, which is really difficult for people like me, is just to let go, to surrender. This is a season of, of surrendering ourselves to God and letting go of all of our attachments Trusting God that he's working in us despite how we feel or don't feel. It's in this night that we are invited to surrender everything. Not just our comforts or consolations, but even the very ways we thought about God. The very ways we currently think about God. The ways in which we thought our relationship with God even worked. We are called to surrender those things. Those are attachments. Those are things that we have that have been useful. They've been good um, in a utility type sense, but it is time to let those things go and move to deeper realities. 
when I made my journey through this narrow gate, I felt like everything I thought I knew was falling to pieces. I was convinced I'd broken my covenant with God. I was abandoned, that I had just sinned against God to the point that he was done with me, that his plans for my life were done. And all things, you know, like all the things I did uh, before in the years prior no longer seemed to work. The way I prayed, the way I studied, my, my, you know, those rituals, right? Those things we do, those acts of faithfulness and, and, and devotion seem to no longer work in this season of life. And it was difficult, but learning that God was never contained in my shallow boxes to begin with was worth every second of it. You know, it's, it's not God like, you know, I, I think about it like it would be easy to think about it as if God is taking a, a gift away. He's giving you something and then he's taking it away. You know, he's taking this gift that he gave you. Can you imagine someone giving you a gift and then years later coming and taking it, revoking it, you know, pulling it away and saying you can't have it anymore? I don't think that's a healthy way to look at it, even though that's kind of how it can be easily viewed, um, even within St. John's text. I, th- I think about it is that early on in our life, we need certain things. We need to feel God a certain way. We need certain formulas of faith to work. We we need certain ideas and concepts Um to help us progress in faith. But there comes a time, as Paul says, when you know we have to move from milk to meat. We have to lay childish things aside. And I think this dark night of the senses is this invitation to do that. It's an invitation to see that God's... All of those things um, are temporary. They're, they're gifts from God. They're God's, great, God's grace working in our lives and permitting those things, but they are not the end-all, be-all that we don't have to feel a certain way to have a good relationship with God, that we don't have to feel a certain way to, to know we are in communion with the divine. And so it is this point of moving on, is this way of relating God. One way of knowing God is coming to an end so another can begin. A deeper, more true way can be birthed in the middle of the old. As everything seems to be falling apart, new life is birthing up. As things seem to be dying, or ways of knowing God, or ways of seeing God seem to be dying and falling apart, falling to pieces, and God is bringing up new life from the depths, and we just can't see it yet because it's still below the soil, it's still below that dirt line, it's still in the ground, but there is something there in the depths of who we are that is growing, that is coming to birth, um, and going to push right out of the dirt, and as soon as dawn, you know, breaks the horizon. And so that's good news. So I don't know where you are. I don't, I don't know if you're, maybe you're feeling this way. That God's abandoned you. That you don't know what to believe. You don't know what to think. You don't know what to pray. You have no desire to do so, but you want the desire to do so. Maybe you're in that dark night of the senses. Maybe you're in this testing, this place in your life where God is trying to move you to deeper realities. Maybe you're in that place of life where God is trying to move you from infancy to adolescence. He's trying to, to move you along. That it's... It, we're, we're ready to run. You, you, you've learned to walk, and now it's time to run and to see God and know God in such a deeper, more beautiful way that doesn't completely do away with consolations or comforts, but a way in which those things are not the end-all, be-all. And that knowing God, knowing the one who gives those consolations and comforts is truly the goal of your spiritual life versus knowing those consolations and comforts. So wherever you're at, I hope you'll be encouraged. I hope um, you'll realize that God is working in your life, whether you feel it or not, whether you recognize it or not, whether you feel like you've done enough or not. Grace will finish what has been started in your life. 
and I think it comes down to surrender. So, friends, wherever you are, know that you are infinitely loved by God and that God's grace is for you. No matter what the situations look like, no matter if you're standing in the noonday sun or it feels like it's been, you, it feels like it's been the dark, the darkness for weeks and weeks and weeks. Wherever you're at, you're loved by God. End of story. All right, friends, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I hope uh, it's a little longer than usual, which I was really glad about because, you know, I love um, being able to talk more, obviously, about these people and about um, John the Cross and these different things and my experiences with them. So I hope this episode was a blessing to you. I hope that you'll go forth. this, the rest of this week in peace and, and knowing that God is with you, even if it doesn't feel like God is with you, even if you feel like God is absent from you, that is, that is the indication that God is, his presence is even more with you than before. Uh, if you haven't subscribed to Signposts, I encourage you to do so. It's just a way for me to show up in your email box, talk to you about other dead people uh, and dead guys that I didn't get to do a whole episode on and news about the the project, the XL Liturgy stuff, the courses I have working on, and all kinds of other cool stuff um, I have coming out. Um, and if you're subscribed to that newsletter, then you're going to be the first to know about those things. And I typically, you know, I give stuff away for free a lot on there um, because I'm trying to make resources for all of you exiles and pilgrims out there on trying to just figure your way through this wilderness. Uh, So sign up for that. Uh, If you would like to support the show, um, you can do so uh, chiefly through prayer, uh, sharing, leaving reviews on iTunes. And lastly, um, which is probably the most difficult for a lot of people, is monetarily um, and financially through Patreon. Um, My family, we're coming into a season where I don't have a job. I don't it looks in many ways like I may have to leave uh, vocational ministry again for a season. And so if you want to support this work and make sure it keeps going, you can subscribe through Patreon. Um, and you know, it can be as m- little as a dollar or as much as whatever you want. And uh, you can support the show and help make sure, cover my, you know, all my costs. I, as this point in life, it costs me $500 a year to produce all the things I produce. Um, and I make zero dollars, so I I spend negative. You know, I spend five hundred dollars a year making this podcast, my website, my posts, my um, courses, and uh, my devotions, and all those things that I give away for free. Five hundred a year. Um, so if you want to help, kind of alleviate that cost and help keep this thing going, and you know essentially buy me a cup of coffee or help me pay a light bill, you can subscribe to Patreon. If not, I will just greatly, um, more than happily accept your prayers uh, in this season of life. So, friends, grace and peace to you. I hope you have a fantastic rest of your week. And may you come to know the love that defies those feelings of absence.